Contours, a podcast of FEBC Korea in Los Angeles. So how would you define a healthy relationship? Well, there's a short answer to that and a long answer to that. The short answer is one I think that promotes flourishing within the relationship on every level, intellectually, spiritually, physically, you're helping that person become the best person that they can be. The long answer, though, is that can be different for different friendships. Different relationships can look very differently. Though I do think there's a a core set of principles. So some couples might argue a lot. Well, I would never want to do that. I wouldn't want that to be true of my marriage. Some families may be very boisterous in how they communicate with each other. So I do think there are some variables what a healthy relationship can look like. I think it's friendship specific. So long as it doesn't cross over into unhealthy. And it's harder to pick out an unhealthy relationship than a healthy one. Because I might look at how you do your friendship and I might think, ah, how can you say that that's intimate? But it works for you. It's your friendship. And you both feel like we're affirming each other, growing. We can't be overly quick to jump in and say, oh, obviously that's not a healthy relationship. If it's working for two people, they generally set the rules for their relationship. It's easier to mark when it goes into unhealthy aspects, physical abuse, verbal abuse, emotional Mm -hmm. abuse, things like that. I think the healthy relationships really are ones that contribute to human flourishing. And so the two individuals who are in the relationship need to become better for having had that relationship. It's a healthy relationship. And obviously, relationships are often not simply two individuals, but it's a family system. And family system, they're using a metaphorical version of the word family. It's a set of relationships that all interplay with one another. When they are healthy, it is the interplay is the thing that makes the component parts flourish and thrive. When I talk to people about this sometimes, what I'll say, rather than say you want to make other people better, you want to leave other people bigger than you found them rather than smaller. And here's the reason I have chosen to change how I say that. I used to say you want to, you want to leave other people better. You want to make them better. When you talk about making another person better, I think there's some kind of a switch that goes in a person's mind that suddenly says, oh, he or she doesn't have this quality. I need to make them better. And it becomes, it can be judgmental. It can be, let me export my value system onto you. But a person would never in response to that say, and I've made that person feel bigger as a person. You understand as you do that, you kind of beat them down, but it's for their own good. And I'm not a huge fan of that. I haven't seen that being enormously productive. If it actually contributed to him, it actually made people flourish and thrive. Well, gee, maybe that just has to happen. But I think people have had those experiences. And when people make you feel smaller, it doesn't contribute to your thriving. And so that's one of the things that I encourage people to think of. If you want to cultivate a a healthy relationship, cultivate a posture of leaving other people bigger than you found them. Make them feel like they are more than they were before you had that encounter. And there's times that you can actually do that even with rebuke and admonition and correction. Part of that's being able to say, hey, I, I have seen you operate in so many different ways and there's so much potential there. Do you understand when you said that thing, you kind of pulled the plug on some of that. And I'd hate to see you keep doing those kind of things because boy, oh boy, I I see all the rest of this coming out. And those moments are the ones that, you know, that that suck that out. And you can do that. And if that's all you ever did in the relationship, it probably wouldn't actually work. But if you have a broader context of, of affirmation and building up, I think it becomes very easy to have moments where you say, hey, this is an honest corrective and let me share it. 
I could offer some specifics. When communication theorists talk about healthy relationships, we tend to talk about communication climates. So a healthy climate between individuals would be made up of four different components. One, do we have the same amount of commitment to the relationship? Do we both feel like we're equally committed? Second, do we acknowledge each other? It doesn't mean you have to agree with me, but do I at least feel like you're acknowledging my perspective? Third would be we both trust each other. And then the last one would be our expectations are being met about the relationship. So if those things are working, then I think we'd call that a healthy communication climate between two individuals. Now, the one caveat I would add to this is I may not be the best person to answer the question, is this a healthy relationship? In other words, I may say, yeah, I'm in a healthy friendship right now. You may look as a third party and say, oh, I don't think that's healthy at all. I don't think you're aware of the fact that it seems like you're doing all the investing and that other person is investing nothing. I think you're being taken advantage of. So I do think we need a community almost to be able to say, hey, as we look at your interactions, I would say that I think this is a healthy relationship because sometimes we get so blind to the fact that this relationship could be moving in unhealthy areas. So I always need that outside input of, no, this is good. I think you guys, it's a good friendship. It's a mutual friendship. Certainly in marriage, that would apply. You want to get people's perspective before you get engaged, married, and things like that. I think there's a part of uh, relationships. We tend to make relationships enormously subjective. So this is a good relationship because it makes me feel good. There's really, I think, a, a very significant objective part to a good relationship because the question isn't just, does this relationship make you feel good, but does this relationship actually help make you good? Is this a relationship that is forming you into an objectively better, better person? And I understand that people, some people doubt that you could ever have objective values and those kinds of things. I don't think most of the Christian community would affirm that. But I would deeply argue that there is such a thing as better and worse human beings and that only a healthy relationship, you can't have a healthy relationship that is making you disformed, but you could have an unhealthy relationship that's making you happy. And that's one of the tensions because sometimes we get in relationships that give us immediate pleasure. It's a little bit like eating junk food. It tastes really good when it goes in, but it goes in, but it doesn't come off. And so next thing you know, you're 25 pounds overweight and you can't walk and your knees are hurting and all these other things. And you realize, oh, this isn't actually, as a matter of fact, good for me. And I think we have a pretty keen idea with food. There is such a thing as objectively good and bad food. There's also food that subjectively tastes good and bad to us. And we clearly know the two are different. It's wonderful when they converge. Let's throw ourselves a party. But we always have that tension. Oh, I know. I love chocolate or I love desserts, but I know they aren't good for me. We have that, that mindset. And I think we need to have that mindset about relationships too, because they can be objectively good or they cannot be. And that doesn't always have a correlation with subjectively if it makes you feel good or not. And that's the tough place we're in today because our country has moved away steadily from a Christian worldview. We get this phrase that Rick and I hear all the time, well, who am I to judge? And I think that can be really damaging in the long term because we do judge when it comes to food. We say that's an unhealthy diet and that's based on these different variables. So today we're in this really weird place today where it's like, well, who am I to judge your definition of marriage or who am I to judge your definition of family? Who am I to judge that this is a good relationship or not, a friendship? So when you throw 
a criteria like the Bible out the window, it has a lot of ramifications because there's nothing you can point to anymore definitively to say this is healthy or unhealthy. Most you can say is, well, it, it wouldn't work for me and I wouldn't like it, but who am I to judge that person? That's a really dangerous place that we're in right now in our culture. So how do we get there? How do we get to building healthy relationships? Well, if what communication theorists are saying is true, so those four elements, mm -hmm. trust, expectations, acknowledgement, and commitment are true, then that kind of gives you the broad parameters of what a healthy friendship or relationship would look like. So I always want to constantly ask myself those questions. Am I committed to this friendship? And how do I express that commitment? How do I acknowledge you in ways that you value? How do we define trust within this relationship? What does that look like? So if that's our template, then we can ask those questions and constantly evaluate relationships based on those four different kinds of criteria. And there's other criteria as well. But those four kind of criteria, I think, are helpful to say, is this a good, healthy communication climate? Now, by the way, don't confuse weather with the climate. In other words, you and I might have a great climate, but we just had a really bad day, right? We had an mm -hmm. argument as friends. Well, I think the climate is really good. We just happen to have a thunderstorm today. So many people get like, oh, okay, we had a bad day. Thus, thus the whole climate is bad. And it's an overreaction. So Southern California is awesome, but we do get rain every once in a while. But most of the time, the climate is really nice. Don't overreact to the weather. And by the way, vice versa, you can have a crummy climate, but every once in a while, friends will have good weather patterns. So we're not really good in this area, this area, this area, this area, but we're good in this one area. And for some reason, I'm letting that overshadow everything else. Uh, this is particularly confusing in dating because a couple will say, well, physically we're intimate and that's really good. And American movies are filled with this, right? They're horrible for each other and they even know they're horrible for each other and they would even say that. Oh, she's the worst thing in the world for me or he's trouble. But romantically, we're doing great. And so you overlook all the danger signs because the one area seems to be clicking really well. You want the whole package, a, a good climate. And, and I would be diligent working in every one of those areas. I think one thing I would particularly encourage people to do who want to pursue healthy relationships is cultivate a really clear vision of the good. What does a good look like? And for a Christian, I think you would say, well, Christ. And it's like, okay, great. But what does that look like actually translated mm -hmm. into action? And, you know, what are the kind of loving qualities he might have? What are, what, what are the kinds of righteousness that, that he might exhibit? One of the things I've observed about college students today is that they have a, a passion for authenticity. I will hear, you know, someone's praising a chapel speaker. Why? Oh, because they were so authentic or real or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. synonym they use for it. And it's interesting I don't think I've ever heard someone say, this chapel speaker or this person seems really holy. We don't use that as a term of mm -hmm. praise. We don't view that as something, you know, wonderful. We have this sense of, oh, the really great thing is authentic. And I often mean that authentic about their weaknesses or their failings. Mm -hmm. And the weird thing is, I honestly think we have people who would rather aspire to have friends who are authentic than friends who are holy or friends who are obedient, or friends who are doing their duty. And it's like, the idea of authenticity is a non-directional idea. It doesn't point you towards the good. It says, whatever you are, be truly that. 
well, what if you're kind of a jerk right now? You're foolish, you're weak, you're lazy, you're undisciplined. And by and large, you're really not living a successful life, but you're authentic. You're really true and honest about that. Just keeping it real. Just keeping it Just real. Just keeping it real. <laughs> and I, I want to say, you know, the, the idea of a healthy relationship is deeply dependent on the notion of some kind of a clear vision of this is actually a good life. And to cultivate that, you need to see that clearly. And then you need to be able to see clearly in another human being what that looks like. As I mentioned, it's really easy. Well, you should be like Jesus great. Does that mean I should grow a beard? Does that mean I grow long hair? What is it that I should look like? How does that look like for a woman who's a 23-year-old uh, newly graduated business professional? Because that doesn't sound very much like Jesus, right? So what are the Jesus-like qualities that you're looking to aspire to? And if you get a clear vision of those and get a clear vision of what they look like in actual the people who are around you, then what you need to do is find your voice to be able to articulate that and to look a person and say, you know what you just did looked just like Jesus or looked truly good. And here's why. And to be able to do that, we become really articulate with failings. <laughs> you know, that was, mm. that was dumb or that was wrong or whatever. And we are often really inarticulate in what's good. And it creates kind of a, a bad sort of an environment in that sense, because we have eyes for the negative but we have no vision for the positive. And so healthy relationships, I think, are deeply dependent on a really clear vision of the positive, the ability to see that in the context of another actual contemporary human life, and then a willingness to praise and cultivate that. I think we see that in media a lot these days. A lot of these families that comes are concentrated on dysfunctional families. And it's entertaining to see them yeah. mess up. And a lot of times it's because you relate to, oh, well, my family's done that, or my brother's done that. And then I think that was a pushback from before, which was you see the perfect family. Right, yeah. And so now it's this space where we see so much of this dysfunction. It's entertaining, but we're not learning anything from it, like you said. I think that's a great example. It's easy to laugh about those things. Right. It's easy to show them. It becomes kind of second nature. But notice what happens is there's nothing then that's feeding mm -hmm. this kind of the vision of the good. And that's really, you, you lose something really, really deep when you, when you no longer have that. And all you can think of is, is the negatives. And like you say, you can joke about them, mm -hmm. but it doesn't help you figure out what the positive right. would actually be. A couple of years ago, there was that show called The New Normal, which is interesting to say, what's normal anymore? Mm -hmm. And I think, again, if you throw out the Bible, everybody's left to say, well, this is normal to me. And I think that can become very dangerous for a culture to lose a sense of what thriving looks like. And what often happens, unfortunately, is that the side effects of those choices don't show up immediately. Kind of like the analogy we used earlier about eating food that's bad for you. You know, you eat a couple bites, it's not like you suddenly get sick. You eat it for a couple weeks, you don't get sick. You eat it for a couple years and you don't get sick. It's one of the things that pays off negative dividends in the long run. And I think there's a ton of social, cultural, ethical, moral changes that we have gone through that bit by bit by bit erode values that we always used to be able to take for granted. But then you wake up one day, 30, 40, 50 mm -hmm. years later, and you're like, oh, something I used to take for granted is now vanished. So then what we talked about, how it's easier to point out unhealthy relationships. So what do you think are some of the causes that you've seen of unhealthy relationships? If I had to pinpoint one thing 
that I see is people don't deal with latent conflict. Latent conflict is conflict that exists below the surface. But for whatever reason, I don't bring it up to you. So the book I, I wrote is called I Beg to Differ, Having Difficult Conversations. Well, I would ask people, how many of you know already you need to have a difficult conversation with the person? And the audience, a ton of people would raise their hand. Then I like to ask, well, why haven't you had the conversation yet? If you know you need to have it, what's kept you from having it? Three answers come to the surface immediately. One, we did have it in the past and went so poorly, I just said, I'm never going to bring that up again. Second, I have it, but I have it in my mind. And I always imagine the conversation going poorly. So I psych myself out. Third, I have no strategy whatsoever to talk about these really tough issues. So I don't talk about it. So on the outside, it may look like we're doing just fine, but on the inside, my anger is turning to bitterness. And bitterness, we can define that as anger that has cemented. There's something we call emotional contagion, which means I could actually be angry towards you, but I just decide for whatever reason, I'm just not gonna voice that anger. And we'll be fine, because you will never know that I'm angry at you. I'm just not, I'm gonna be pleasant towards you. But emotional contagion means my negative emotions actually bleed onto you and you pick up on it. We call that getting a negative vibe from, mm. from someone. Fascinating study that was done in Com Theory. Two individuals were asked to rate a speaker. So they go and hear a speaker, they come back, they sit in a room for three minutes, are not allowed to talk to each other. One of the two people is actually in on the study and is told, you are to think negative thoughts about the speaker continually for three minutes. You just can't say anything. Afterwards, they go back into another room. They're asked to re-rank the speaker. And don't you know that the person who was more positive in most cases lowered his or her score just by being in a room with a person who had negative thoughts towards the speaker? So my thoughts, my emotions do bleed out onto you. And I poison the relationship because I have so much pent up anger and conflict, but I don't share it with you, but I'm still poisoning the relationship. So an unhealthy relationship is we never get to the root issues that are causing conflict. We just never talk about it for whatever reason. So when the top marital counselors says, the mere fact that you tell me you don't have conflict in your marriage in and of itself is not an indicator that you have a healthy relationship. I want to know why you don't talk about your differences, why you don't have disagreements. In the book, I Beg to Differ, one whole chapter is dedicated to what are the causes of conflict within a relationship to make it move towards being unhealthy. I think part of what happened to human beings in the fall was our compass got broken. And if you think about a compass, you know, it has this remarkable little metal needle and the one end of that needle points due north. It points at mm -hmm. something. For human beings, I think we should have within us what you might call the, the compass of affection and the compass of attention. And we ought to have the things we attend to be the things that we should love. That would be a well-ordered human being. But when you become fallen, those two things break apart and you begin to attend to things that you shouldn't actually love, that aren't actually good or whatever. And one of the ways I see that most commonly is a deep negativism, cynicism. We just tend to think about negative things. And I've known marital couple, married couples who are basically held together in their weird relationship by their mutual hatred of some 
other thing. In fact, I often see them discussing their mutual hatred of the third party. I've seen this in the church where you see two couples who are really negative about either a pastor or some activity or event. And it seems like their focus is on that which they hate. I think that's enormously destructive to long-term health and relationship. And to be able to get your affections and your attention turn both to the same good place. I love these things that are good. And so I attend to them. I talk about them. I seek them. I cultivate them. I spend time. I spend money on these kinds of, of good things. It's like our compass just automatically deflects in a different direction. And we have to almost do special effort to go back and focus on these things that are good, that are healthy, that I know that I actually love and value. I'm going to let that be the place where my, my attention compass maps onto instead of allowing it to drift to my irritants, my negatives, my, my things that I hate. I, like I say, unfortunately, as Tim already mentioned, you can have couples who have very little conflict because they're spending their time focused yeah. on some other third thing mm -hmm. that they hate, but it doesn't really lead to a positive or healthy relationship. Could you share some examples of unhealthy relationships we can find in the Bible? The Bible is swimming with unhealthy relationships. I gave a sermon on Joseph several years ago at church, and he had the most dysfunctional family you could possibly imagine. You know, four moms were floating through this family, two wives and two concubines associated with those wives. You have 12 kids who don't get along with each other. They're fighting with one another. You have a dad who's playing favorites. And you know, I mean, the list just goes on and on of the things that you see happening. Of course, it culminates with throwing Joseph in a pit and then pulling him out rather than killing him and selling him into slavery. These are siblings doing this to one another. And it just brings out this incredible question is, why do the people who are supposed to love me hurt me instead? So I, I began thinking about that. And so I had a series of four questions associated with a sermon like that. You know, so I preached this, this sermon. I was talking a couple weeks later to the person who ran the tape ministry. And she said, that single sermon is the number one sermon that we've ever had in terms oh. of tapes reproduced. Wow. And I just thought, I, I mean, wonderful. People like the sermon, but so sad to me that that was so much centered on these deeply dysfunctional relationships. But the point was people saw, oh my gosh, this sort of family life is very much represented by, well, it's not a foreign thing to scripture. And in fact, all of the teachings of scripture are exactly designed to help people accommodate and navigate those kinds of issues in, in the context of, of human relationships, be they families, be they friendships, you know, whatever. So do you have any additional tips for mending broken relationships? Let me tell you the illustration and then make the application of it. Several years ago, I was reading a news magazine. I don't know if it was Time or Newsweek or U.S. News and World Report, but they make a note about, I think it was Bank of America stock. Some bank had just, their stock had gone up a lot and they were given the explanation. And they said, the explanation is that they, you know, after six years of delay or something like that, they have written off all of this bad debt. So they were carrying on their books as an asset, an amount of money that was supposed to be paid back to them from a loan they had made. But those loans were not being paid back, but they were still wanting to claim it as their asset. This is our asset, this is our asset. And finally they woke up one day and said, we have to write this loan off. We no longer claim it as an asset. We're just going to take the loss and we're going to take it today. 
And the funny thing was, as soon as they did that, their stock shot up mm -hmm. because everyone on the outside said, it's about time. Mm -hmm. I think people do that exact same thing. Someone else has hurt me and they owe you a debt. Because you have harmed me, you owe me something to make it right. And then a year passes and they haven't paid you back on that debt. And another year passes, but you hold that debt on your balance sheet. You are owed something and you're not going to let it go until you get that back. And all that happens is your stock as a human being goes down, 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 because you're holding on to bad debt. And the question is, how soon will you just give it up? And I think that's one of the things that people do with negative relationships. They hold on to the hurts. They expect someone else who has hurt them to somehow pay them back. And until they're paid back, they won't let go. And the best thing you can do with, with bad debt is to let go. And I think that's part of where the gospel becomes so important. Right. You know, he redeems these things. He holds your bottles and your tears in a bottle. <laughs> he wipes them away. There's someone who tends your hurts, number one. And number two, there's someone who actually restores and gives grace upon grace. You know, he said, you know, let those things go because other good things will come. But as long as you're holding on to that, you can't take the new things that come. You're trapped. You're unblessable. What Rick is saying is, Paul would say, I want you to forgive as you have been forgiven in Colossians chapter three. As you have been forgiven by Christ, I want you to turn and give that forgiveness to the person who hurt you. That's really hard to do. That's why mending a broken relationship is a spiritual process. Mm -hmm. You have to prepare for that spiritually. Much prayer, much time. It, it doesn't mean you can't go back and ask the questions, why was the relationship broken in the first place? What broke it? Mm -hmm. But it's going to have to be what Rick is saying, an attitude of grace, because I received so much forgiveness at the foot of the cross. I now need to turn and give that to a person. Rick, you said something earlier about the erosion of values. What about culturally and the larger picture as we're experiencing these erosions of values? How do we turn back the tide of mending those type of broken values? That is the million dollar question is how do you culturally affect a place like America or Korea or any place? Mm -hmm. how, how do you actually make those huge changes? So to, from a communication standpoint, Alan Monroe studied persuasion. He's the top guy. He would say two steps in ever trying to persuade a person. One, get their attention, make them believe it's a problem. So one, we believe there's a problem in America, let's say from a Christian standpoint. But the people we're trying to persuade don't necessarily think anything's broken that needs to be fixed. Actually, we're in a great place getting rid of these old traditional mores that we just need to jettison. So what we have to do is first I need to get your attention and then make you believe it's a problem. So that might be the current state of relationships today. Since 1992, a survey's been done. It escapes me the name of the survey asking Americans, do you trust each other? It is at today, it's all-time low, that Americans generally do not trust each other. Well, maybe that's one way of getting people's attention and saying, okay, why is there a lack of trust? What's the problem? Then what Rick mentioned a while ago is this thing called plausibility structures. So instead of me trying to convince you something is true, that might be way too hard for me to do. I need to first get you to think that it might be true. Why don't we trust each other? Might it be possible that it's because we're deeply fallen people that are in rebellion against God? Maybe. Second, you have to believe the culture, you have to communicate to them, 
This is a problem if left unattended, going back to Rick's analogy about eating bad food, this is going to have huge consequences in our homes, our schools, our organizations. Um, it's going to have deep impact in culture. If you don't do those first two things, Alan Monroe would say, you will never persuade anybody. I think another thing in terms of changing a culture, I think there's, there's things that, that happen kind of at two levels. I think it was Goethe who said, if everyone swept in front of their own door, the whole world would be clean. <laughs> and when it comes to certain issues, you know, you hear the church complaining about marriage, and yet we practice divorce, we have sex outside of marriage, we do all kinds of things that are very similar to what the world does. And you know what? The, the, the first step towards recovering marriage in America today is for the church to do it right. Let's sweep in front of our own door. Um, we complain about sex education in the, the public high schools. Well, you know, how are we doing in the Christian high schools? Let's do this well with our teenagers. And then the world might just look at us and say, wow, they're doing something that we aren't. So I think that's the first thing is for to make sure that we are actually living this out and, and doing it right. The other part of it is to acknowledge the fact that there are things that really do matter from the top down. There are great big picture issues that are, that are answered by legislation, political action, social movements, and things like that that really do matter within a culture. And we need to cultivate people who are articulate and capable and have the vision for making those kinds of changes. Um, we need to educate them. And one of them is we need to help them be wise about how to actually do this practically. As Tim has mentioned, the, the issue, you know, how to be an effective counterpublic, how to have effective disagreements, these sorts of things. We need to cultivate some politicians who have these sorts of skills. I was appalled one time when a a uh, guy who was running for the House of Representatives in the district where I was being a pastor came in to talk to me, wanting me to, you know, give his support him and his candidacy. And I just thought, well, let me ask him a few questions about things that were important political issues at that time. This is in the early 90s. And after this point, there was health care reform that was being supported by Hillary Clinton. And I just asked him about the health care reform because it's just a hot issue. The guy had no idea. And I asked three or four other questions, and I realized his prime sense of his qualification for running for congressman, high political office, was the mere fact that he happened to be a Christian. Well, I would never go to a brain surgeon simply because he was a Christian. Right. I would never hire a contractor simply because he's a Christian. I wouldn't go to a car mechanic just because he was a Christian. He has to be able to be a car mechanic or a carpenter mm -hmm. or a brain surgeon. There's core competencies required. And I don't think we have had much of a political vision of what does a good politician look like? That's just an oxymoron. We laugh about the idea of a good politician. Well, if the only thing you can drum up when you think of a good politician is something so comical that you feel like laughing, you shouldn't be training a person to be a politician. We need to have someone with a vision of what does it mean to actually be a good and faithful public servant. This is a thing that I think historically Christians have thought a lot about, that recently we've become so cynical about politics that we simply think being the opposite of what everybody else is will somehow magically work. Well, it won't. And we need to cultivate wisdom and prudence and skills of governing in the people we put forward to make this kind of change. And I think we have not really had the patience or the will as a, as a broader evangelical community to do this very well. So even in working healthy relationships, 
there are unhealthy aspects. Can you recommend on how we can mend those unhealthy aspects within relationships that's, whose climate is healthy? There's a guy named John Gottman. All of us use him. He's a communication theorist. His research is great. So he would say two things that I hope your listeners will find encouraging. One, he would say this. Most conflict in a friendship or relationship is what he calls perpetual conflict. It will keep coming back up because nobody's right, nobody's wrong. By the way, he says in marriage, that's 67% of all your conflict is perpetual. It will keep coming back up because nobody's right. These are just mere preferences. Second, he says, let me tell you the secret to a healthy relationship. It is what he calls the five to one ratio. It is five positive interactions for every one negative interaction. Now, what constitutes a positive interaction? Well, you need to decide that in your friendship. He suggests that you actually come up with a list of positive interactions. And it can be very small things, like you got a bowl of ice cream, you asked me if I wanted one. You emptied the dishwasher. You um, smiled when I walked into a room. He said those are all positive interactions. Also find out what are the negative interactions. So then he says, okay, now you have the five to one ratio. Now, most of us would say, listen, if I'm doing two to one, Come on, I'm doing twice as many positive as negatives. That's unbelievable. If I'm doing three to one, that's divine. I mean, come on. Well, he says, no, no, no. His research says it has to be a five to one ratio. So I need to, within this relationship, I think be very attentive to know one, be self-aware enough to know I just racked up a negative and I need to know what those positives are. So it's constantly being attentive to the relationship. Then making sure you're not letting latent conflict happen. So Paul's response to this is, before the sun goes down, I want you to deal with the anger. By the way, he didn't say resolve the conflict. That might be impractical and even unhealthy. But I do not want you to let that conflict sit there, I mean, anger sit there, because that will turn into bitterness. And by the way, he spiritualizes it by saying, and I also don't want you to give the devil a foothold, because he'll take that anger and use it against that relationship. So I would say it's, a, it's both of those. I'm being very attentive, doing a five to one ratio. And second, I'm really being attentive to deal with my anger in a timely fashion, not to let it become rooted and perhaps go into bitterness. I think one of the things that Christians have done through the centuries that I think is a practice that we kind of have drifted away from. I don't even pretend to know all the reasons why. What you might call thoughtful introspection. <laughs> a season for, for confessing of sins or reflection that leads to confession. Um, the Catholic Church has a lot of that institutionalized in, in confessionals, but the Puritans had a really interesting approach to that. It was often their journaling. So they would write in journals, and in that context, they would reflect on the day. They would often write it in the evening, sometimes in the morning, but for many people in the evening, while the day is still not even so much fresh in your mind, but in your mind. It is, it's there to be examined. And you stop and you think through the interactions you had through the course of that day. I think it's a helpful thing for us to become kind of self-aware and not introspective as an overall climate of our personality, but to have regular seasons of thoughtful introspection to say, what are the things I'm doing that hurt my spouse or that alienate my kids? You stop and think, gosh, at lunch today, my son didn't talk to me at all. He didn't initiate any conversation. It was just an irritating thing in the back of my mind as I thought about it. But 
I realize that now. And to stop and think about that, what did I do or what led to the fact? And then perhaps even to ask your son that the next morning, say, hey, it just dawned on me last night when I thought about it. We hadn't, it didn't seem like you were initiating conversation. I didn't know if that was something that I had done or if it was something that happened to you during the, the day that made you not want to talk. But either way, I'd love to know. Then you create a, a climate where those issues can be resolved. I think maybe I'm going back to what Tim said about latent conflict. You have these things that are sitting there. And part of why you let them sit there is because you don't take the time to become self-aware of them. So you kind of self-paper over those things. And until you bring them to your full consciousness, you won't ever address them. You won't change them. And they'll just become part of the background conditions of your life. So this segment closes a series for healing and reconciliation. We're interested in just summarizing some of the building blocks for healthy relationships once more. Just like it'd be really silly to ignore the climate outside. I guess you could say, hey, we're going for a picnic tomorrow. I don't care what the weather is. We're going. Meet at nine o'clock. I don't care if it's raining. I don't care if it's 110 <laughs> degrees heat index. We're going. I don't care. The climate is not going to dictate what we're doing tomorrow. Everybody would say that's silly. When all of us go for a trip, the first thing we do is we hit the weather channel and say, hey, what, what is it like in Boston or someplace? Same is true in all relationships. You cannot ignore the communication climate. You can't do it. It will inhibit your communication. So all of us have a communication climate with our friends, relatives, spouses, children. So know what that climate is. Be good weather forecasters, climate forecasters, and work with the climate, not against it, and try to build the weak areas of your climate. But that means we're going to have to learn how to do that and be attentive to those four areas we've already mentioned. I think for me, one of the things that I would really reinforce is what I mentioned before about having a vision for goodness, that you really clearly see what things ought to, to look like and have that vision for that actually lived out, not just the theoretical one, you know, oh, the Jesus thing that's him back then, but how would that look in the life of a contemporary person now that you really cultivate that positive vision instead of allowing yourself to kind of drift with, I think, ordinary fallen human culture into a gutter of focusing your attention on the, on the negative, and therefore you're completely unaware of a direction that you should be pulling yourself out to pursue. And that would be a thing that I think we, we really can't do enough of is to cultivate that, that clarity of vision of the good and the healthy. Well, Rick and Tim, thank you for joining us and thank you for sharing your valuable insights to our episodes.